Today's scripture reading will be coming from the from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. Uh, will you all rise for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of the Lord. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and be back from Japan. Uh, it's good to share the word with you. Before I start, I just want to say Happy Mother's Day. And I found a, a little quote I wanted to read for you. Um, and it says, Mother's Day isn't always a celebration, though. Uh, sometimes it can be a painful reminder for people who have lost their mothers, women who are not yet mothers, and mothers who have lost their children. And that reminded me of Romans chapter 15, where it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep, and thereby we live in harmony with one another. Uh, Sarah Wallace wrote this about Mother's Day. She said, uh, let us cast aside both self-condemnation and self-reliance and live instead in the reality of the good news. Let's run more quickly to the cross when we fail our kids and get things wrong. Let's boast more often in Jesus and the power of the Spirit when we get things right. And may our love for our kids point them to the deeper, wider longer love bestowed on those who belong to the family of God. That's Sarah Wallace from, uh, she's the author of The Gospel-Centered Mom. And I thought that was pretty poignant, and I think that's, uh, that's who we are, you know? We celebrate, and there's reason to celebrate, and we rejoice when we need to rejoice, and we also mourn with those who mourn. But that's the collective us. There's all this in us, and we do it together. And so happy Mother's Day. And I hope that uh, you can cherish this day and cherish the mothers that you've been given. And um, we'll start off that way. Let's pray before we begin. <clears throat> Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on your true understanding, on our true understanding of your holy word, grant to all of us that our hearts being free from worldly things may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all our hearts. To your praise and honor, through our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I shared um, some of the reasons why we do certain things, why we start a certain way, uh, why we open up our service with the word, and it's going to share quickly why we pray the prayer before we listen to the word. Um, there's three basic prayers the preacher prays. And number one is open the hearts of the listeners to God's word. Number two is open the mouth of the preacher so that he preaches faithfully or that I preach faithfully and exposit well. And number three is protection from Satan taking up that seed afterwards so that we can live it. And so that's why we pray certain things. And I wanted to share with you before I begin 
some of my life verses, um, this has been verses that have blessed me, that I shared with people. And even when I, um, I was in Pilgrim, we had an EM, I would share this with the head pastor and say, this, these are my life verses. And, and you could tell kind of how God has been shaping me and why are we going to do certain missives for the next three weeks? Uh, one is from John 21, uh, verses, just verse 18, when Jesus goes to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this is uh, Jesus telling Peter how he's going to die. And this is... Um, this is a verse that really captivated my heart uh, before I became ordained. Uh, after I became ordained as a minister, uh, the one passage that really stuck out to me was 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, For the Jews demand signs, and Greek, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And so these are the two kind of verses that really shape um, my pastorhood and the ministry that I believe I've been called to lead. Gujin shared about Japan, and it, I think it was one of the most memorable trips I've had. And I do think it's because you have been praying for us. And I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much for your support and prayers. Uh, I want to share something really briefly before I go on about, uh, to today's missive. It's one thing that struck me was when we were having a conversation with the missionary, and you heard uh, Kyujin share that when uh, he would go out with his kids to the park, which is like two minutes from where they live, all these kids would run up to him and call him dad, dad. And, he's like, and all the moms would say, no, 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 he's not your dad, he's not your dad. But they would just call him dad anyway and ask him, when are you going to come again? And he would just say, be here at this time next week. And they would see him again. Uh, the dads work a lot. Um, like, like Eugene said, they would leave at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning, come back past 12. And then, you know, I kind of heard, spending time with the missionary, I heard his heart for the people of Japan, how a lot of people are suffering, how a lot of men in Japan don't know intimacy. And if that's weird, um, <clears throat> now there's such a separation between this family unit that there are cafes that you go to. And this is just going to sound really foreign and weird, so I'm putting this disclaimer out there. But there's a cafe or these places that men, older men can go to and younger women would sit next to them and that's all they would do. I'm not kidding. They would, that's all they would do. And sometimes it would just be like looking in their, each other's eyes or holding each other's hands. Nothing sexual. And that's what they would do. And to me, that kind of broke my heart <laughs> because people just don't know even how to be intimate with their wives or their families, and they don't know what to do. So these businesses are popping up in Japan. Um, the video that Tim made, he said he made it kind of like a testimony. It, it, it is such a beautiful country, and it breaks our hearts that they don't know Jesus. And that's, I think, 
one of the big things and our drivers of why we want to go there, support the missionaries there, and share, share to everybody that we know the love of Jesus Christ. One of, the, one of my favorite times that I had there, and I told the team this, so I'm not just making it up. My favorite moments in my time there with the team was we did morning devotionals together. And now that may sound lame, but every morning we would wake up and we would just read the Bible and then we would reflect on the Bible, sit in what Scripture said, share with one another, and if someone had questions, they would ask the questions and then I would do my best to explain what I could explain. Every morning that devotional took more than an hour, just letting you know. And it wasn't like an hour of singing. We started with maybe a three-minute song, but... I'm telling you, an hour filled with just reading the Bible. And it was one of the most beautiful times that uh, I had there. I got an opportunity to speak and share a sermon with the church that you saw, the church with no name. Um, And I only had 15 minutes. They said, you can preach, but you have 15 minutes because we have a time limit on the time that they can rent. So they have to be out. Even as we were ending service and wrapping up, uh, the dance group that reserved it after were coming in, so we had to rush out. So I had 15 minutes because it would take around 15 minutes to translate, so the sermon's about 30 minutes. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give zero stories, just straight-up exegesis. Exegesis meaning I'm just going to go verse by verse, verse by verse. This is the verse in Romans chapter 5, and this is the next verse and next verse. And I saw some people in tears, and then Kujin be, ever being the, the good... Um, you know, follow up, making sure that she has all her evidence, right? She would go up to them and ask them, why were you crying? And then um, while you were listening to the word, and they would respond, is because they just kept on feeling that Jesus is beautiful. <laughs> just exegesis. Jesus is beautiful. And that's, and that's why I want to preach on certain misses, because when, when we listen to the word and we really have it opened up to us, I really do believe that's the cry of our hearts. Jesus is beautiful. And a precious sister that went to the conference uh, with me a few weeks ago said one of the things that really blessed her was every speaker that went up, you can tell that the way they handled the word was with such fear and reverence. That's why she was so blessed. And this is what I want to talk about today, about the Holy Scriptures, why the Bible and everything that it says is truly, truly beautiful. Um, Just to give some context, I won't be doing a straight-up exegesis the next three weeks, I'm going to give you missives. Just, it just, missives just means long explanation of why we believe what we believe. And I can't wait to go back to Matthew. But I thought it was a good season for our church. In my prayers and discernment, um, I'm on, I just want to let you know, I was on my knees the past uh, few weeks and months praying that our church be ready to listen to this so that we can grow and mature. Uh, But this is the quick context of what was read today. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul writes this. Before we saw the verses that were read today, he goes, But understand this, that in the last days, what's the last days? Last days is post-Jesus, okay? 
last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. That means you talk bad about people and you say terrible things. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And Paul continues, says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's the context. So Paul is saying in the last days, we're in the last days, in the last days, all these things are going to happen. And be careful, be alert. Don't fall asleep in this world, in this day and age, because if you fall asleep, you'll be inundated with these messages that are going to come from the outside, and you won't even know why you believe certain things. You think, you'll think that this is normal, and then you'll see slowly but surely your life and culture start to deteriorate, not knowing even what intimacy is. I don't even know how to have intimate relationships with my children or my wife or anybody in my family. And that's what is happening to the world. How does Paul say we are to equip ourselves, ready ourselves, make sure we are defended? What are we to do? And this is why he goes to the verse that we read. We are to equip ourselves with the Holy Scriptures because it's God-breathed and it is profitable. There are two things. It's breathed out by God and it is profitable. It's good for us. So there are two things we need to get before we start. God's word is breathed out by God. These are the very words of God. Every single page, every single word, every single iota, dot, tittle, whatever you want to consider it, in the Bible is breathed out by God. And number two it's good for us. It's profitable. And this is what we want to get into today. Well, what I want to get into today. So there are three basic questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to look at the time. And if I have enough time, I'm going to go to certain objections that people have and answer that. This is why you may have gotten a postcard on your way in. If you do have questions, you want to keep it anonymous. I really want to respect that and bless it. You can write down your question and put it uh, in a box, I suppose it's somewhere, and then I'll read it after service. I'm not sure if there will be questions. I actually have no idea <laughs> if anybody's going to ask questions. Some of you might be like, mm, that's good, okay, bye, I want to eat. But it could be. Or some of you might have legitimate questions like, what about this, what about that? And I want to respect that. I, I learned it uh, when I was in this conference before, like I mentioned, and uh, this one author, she said that she loved it that the pastor in her church would always have Q&A after her sermons. And I said, like, oh, that's a good idea. I think I want to try that. And so I'm giving it a shot for the next three. If there are any questions, you could write it down, and then I'll do my best to answer it. Do I have all the answers? And if you know me, no, I, I front like I do, but I don't. And so we want to keep humble in this. So I'm going to ask three basic questions. Number one is, how do we know the Bible is trustworthy? 
And number two is, then how do we respond to the current cultural crisis for truth? And number three is, then how should we, how should we read the Bible? Number one, the question I'm going to be asking throughout my talk is, how do we know the Bible is trustworthy? Number two is, how do we respond to the cultural crisis right now? And number three is, how should we then read the Bible? Uh, every talk I'm going to give for the next weeks, I'm going to suggest a book to you. It's going to be one of the books that I, I will reference throughout the talks. And can we have that first picture? This is Amy Orr Ewing's book. And uh, the if you can't see it, the title says, Is the Bible Intolerant? And uh, you can keep that up while I explain who she is. Amy Ort Ewing uh, went to a school in the UK called Oxford. <clears throat> it's a pretty famous school. And while she was in her studies in Oxford, she, uh, she, there's a final examination, like a thesis paper you'd write, like many of you did when you were in school. And she got a perfect score in her Greek paper. She got a perfect score in her next two papers. And then in the fourth paper, she almost failed. So they gave her a viva voce, which is just, um, it's an oral examination, or they just call it a viva. But viva voce is an oral examination, which is very surprising. And the viva voce, or the oral examination, means the 13 most senior professors in Oxford would sit in a panel, and then she would sit across from them, and they would test her. It's one of the most nerve-wracking things you could ever do, especially if your degree or whatever you want uh, is on the line. And what she wrote about in her fourth paper was this, the historical reliability of the gospel accounts and Jesus' claim to divinity. The historical reliability of the gospel accounts and Jesus' claim to divinity. And they gave her this oral examination. And after the oral examination, they gave her the highest marks they could give her. All 13 of them. And the, the chair of that, uh, the professors would come to her afterwards and say, Look, the reason why you almost failed your fourth paper and we had to give you this oral examination is because in your fourth paper, you destroyed your marking professor's entire life's work. Because you argued academically and archaeologically that there was a basis for the gospel accounts and that they were true. And so the marking professor wanted to fail her because his whole life work was based on the Bible is not true. And here she puts out evidence. Here's what is even more amazing. She was an undergrad student. This is not even a doctor program or a PhD. She was an undergrad student. She wrote this paper, and they, they wanted to fail her. Uh, that, that's the kind of world we're in. Thank you for putting that picture up. And so every, every, every talk, I would just want to give you an encouraging book to perhaps read. And next week, I'm going to give, even give you more literature, because even though this talk may be a little long, it's not exhaustive. So I'm going to hit some points, move on. And I hope that you'll be okay. And if you have further questions, that's why we have the Q&A. And I'll also give you extra um, readings or material or literature. I, I want to title the next, the next section, Well, that's just your interpretation. Well, that's just your interpretation. And so that's what I'm going to title this section. Um, there's, a, there's a story of um, a person responding to a pastor 
And she just found out she was a pastor. So when someone finds out you're a pastor, it's weird how some conversations just come out. And she told the pastor, the reason I am not a Christian is that I am studying English literature and I don't believe that there is a transcendental signified. And so I can make the Bible mean whatever I want to mean. And then uh, just if I'm sure you're, you're following, but it just means like I can, make, I can make any word mean what I want to mean. And so that's why I don't believe the Bible. And then he thought about it a little bit, and uh, he said, if that's the case, if words have no meaning except to the meaning uh, to the listener or reader, then is it okay with you that if I take what you have just said to mean, I believe, I believe in Jesus and I am a Christian. And then at that moment, she knew that she couldn't even measure up to the standards where she was judging the Bible. Her own standards and thinking could not measure up. When I was in Japan, I had a hard time. Uh, the hardest time I think I had was when we sat down together as a team. Not because I didn't like the team. I love the team. Um, but because there were no chairs. Uh, I don't know why, but people don't have chairs. And I wished I had a chair. We all sat on the floor, and my body is not made to sit like that, and um, I suffered a little, but I was thinking, I wish I had a chair. Immediately when I said those words, I wish I had a chair, every single one of you knows exactly what I mean when I said I wish I had a chair. Although I can even attest that probably none of you have imagined the exact same chair. Does that make sense? I bet each and every single chair that you imagined we're different from each other, but you still knew exactly what I meant when I said, I wish I had a chair. And this is what we are talking about. Language has a meaning. It is portraying something, and we are able to understand what the person is saying. Meaning, in the end, and this is what Amy Orr Ewing writes, if the Bible only means what we make it to mean, then there's no point of reading it to discover anything about God. This is when we see literature come out and people like George Orwell write about newspeak. You know, you know how to change someone's culture or mind? Change what the words mean. And that's what we're coming to. Change what the word marriage means. Change what the word tolerance means. Change what these words really mean. Because once we change the words, then perhaps we could change culture. Nietzsche knew this. And he said the only way that we could get rid of God was to get rid of grammar and language. Because inside language, there is this inevitable viewpoint and there is evidence of God and belief in God. Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist, would say the same thing. He would echo this statement. We got to get rid of language. How we get rid of language is how we could get rid of God. But however, when we even speak and I talk, we realize that God is powerfully linked with language and meaning. Whether it was written 2,000 years ago or whether it's said today, words can be understood. That's where I want to go up to the next section, and I want to ask it like this. Are the biblical manuscripts reliable then? I get it. Words, they have meaning. They, they present something, but 
are these words really even the words? Rabbi Zacharias would go on to say, there, in 2,000 years, there has been no other book that has been more scrutinized, more criticized than this book. And yet, this book has not only survived, but it has thrived. Meaning this, there is rarely a week, if there is a week that a book outsells the Bible. The Bible sells almost first place every week. That, that's, that's pretty impressive. So what is the Bible? The Bible is 66 books. It's comprised of the Old Testament and New Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. When I was a kid, we were given this mathematical equation, 3 times 9 equals 27, so that's how you can memorize 39 and 27. 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. It was written over a period of 1,600 years and has more than 40 authors. And guess what? What's more amazing is every single writer came from different backgrounds. We have kings. We have diplomats. We have people in poverty, poor people. We have shepherds. We have fishermen. We have a tax collector. We have tent makers. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and it was written across three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And so the question needs to be asked, does it have integrity? Does the Bible have integrity? Integrity of any ancient writing is determined how, by how many documented manuscripts that we have or fragments of manuscripts that still exist. I'll give you an example. The ancient manuscripts of Plato, which we still study in our schools today, has there's less than 10 existing copies. The oldest debated, or oldest, sorry, oldest dated manuscript we have, remember there's 10, less than 10 existing copies of the manuscripts of Plato, the oldest manuscript we have from the work where it was written and the date that we found it to be dated is 1,400 years. However, the text is still respected and read today as it was Plato's work. What about the Bible? The Bible has over 5,300 manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts are separated by 25 to 50 years. I'm going to give you a slide to just show a comparison. Can we get that next picture up? So here are some manuscript evidence for ancient writings. So we have, um, let's say, Caesar, the writings of Caesar, and the earliest fragment when it was found, and the time span between when we believe it was written and when we found, or the dated fragment, Plato, seven, um, we continue to go down all the way to, and I think the most is Homer's Iliad, which is uh, about 643. But even though we have 643 number of manuscripts, we look at the New Testament now, and from when it was written, the earliest fragment copy we have, the number of uh, the fragments and the manuscripts that we have is over 24,000. And so what we are seeing here is an incredible wealth of manuscripts. Uh, we could take that out. What about how the Bible was put together? What about the canonization of Scripture? If you, if you really want to know more, if you want to be a nerd about it, there's a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, he wrote a book called The Canon of Scripture, which you can read. However, I'll just tell you, the New Testament, 
or the process of recognizing and collecting began all the way in the first Corinthian church, uh, sorry, first Christian church. And very early on, New Testament books were being recognized. Paul considered Luke's writings authoritative, just as authoritative as the Old Testament when he put those two together in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. <coughs> Excuse me. Peter recognizes Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3. Some of the books, New Testament books, were being circulated at the time that we see, like in Colossians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He even encourages people. 1 Thessalonians was one of the first um, books or letters written in the Old Testament. And he encourages people, spread it out. Let all the people read it. So you see all these letters not only circulating Asia Minor, per se, but all the way to Europe and even Africa. And so all of these books that we know to be the Bible has already, in the first century, being, were being read by Christians over and over as scripture, as scripture. So even if, let's say I wrote, uh, or Paul wrote, I didn't write, but Paul wrote uh, the letter to the Ephesians, people would take it, get, get it delivered, but even on the way to Ephesus, and after they received it in Ephesus, they would spread the letter out saying, this letter, even though it's addressed to us, is scripture, and all of us should read it. And so, uh, Justin Martyr, who was, uh, some of you are like second gen or third gen Koreans, and people, people have that language. Uh, that means your parents were here for the first time. They immigrated to America, and you were born in America. Then you call that first gen. Or if you uh, immigrated here and went to school here, we even have things like 1.5. There's no such thing. It's just first gen, second. But we have things like 1.5, and now people are like, I'm 1.25 or 1.75. So okay, 1.66. How about that? But uh, but you know, um, Justin Martyr was like either a second or third generation Christian, and he would say this: on the day called Sunday, there's a gathering together to one place of all those who live in cities or in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. That's beautiful. And this is like, wow, that's a dream, isn't it? Just to sit and read the Bible. Uh, go on to the next topic. What about other holy books? Well, the Bible is unique. Why? Because once again, it was written in a span of over a thousand years, over three continents, over 40 authors, and they all coincide with each other. It would be hard-pressed for us to even suggest that there was a mass conspiracy over 1,600 years between three different continents to the minute, minutia, the details of how Jesus would be born, let alone how he would live and die and rise again in the scriptures over this vast array of people unless something more powerful was at play. I'm going to give you the most, um, to me, the biggest reason why we should follow the Bible is because Jesus affirms and upholds Scripture. Jesus Christ himself upholds Scripture. In Matthew, we went over this. He's the one that says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished 
This is in context with, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the, that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, I have, in trying to follow the Bible, it's not, it's not you guys here, but even in my conversations with my peers and things like that, some people would think that if you follow the Bible, perhaps you're being too strict. Or they'll use words like too conservative, you know. Those are like Paul's words. They're not Jesus. Like Jesus said the exact same thing. But, um, and so be like too strict, too conservative. Uh, those, those are interesting things. So that's why I preached on what does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be liberal? And some people are like, wow, that is actually uh, almost romantic and something to look up to. You don't care what no one thinks. And <laughs> that's not true. I care what people think. Um, why do we do the things that we do? And I thought about it. Isn't it because, isn't it because in the end, we have one commanding officer? He's the one that will call us to account. What have you been following? Uh, Ligon Duncan would write, um, there's a God that we want, that's not God. And so who is the God that is? The God that is, is the Bible. And so some stuff is tough. Like when we were doing our devotionals, we went to Numbers 5. Numbers 5 is not easy to read. It's about um, if a husband is jealous, even if he has no proof, he takes the wife to the priests and he makes her drink this ink water. It's really weird. It's like, what does that mean? So I sat down and we went over it and explained it. This is what it means in light of the gospel. We went to First Timothy. These, these were all the devotions that were in our timeline. So we, I didn't pick and choose. We went to First Timothy chapter 2 where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. What does that even mean? So we went over what the gospel means and how it's actually freeing and uplifting to people. And so these are the things that we don't actually throw out because it's hard, but we actually lift up, and we actually lift it up to the place. Where do we lift it up? We lift it up to the place where Jesus lifted it up. Where did Jesus lift up the scriptures to? We put it there. Nowhere else. And so the question that I always ask myself is, do I really want to follow Jesus? Do I want to be like him? Did he stick to scripture? And I have to say emphatically the answer is yes. And so this is what we're going to try to do. But I will also say, even if it's difficult, doesn't mean that it's going to be difficult and sad all day long. When we have our eyes open and these things are explained to us in the light of the gospel and the truth and the life of Jesus Christ, we see that the scripture is beautiful. It's amazing. It's freeing. It actually is profitable to us every single portion. And so these are the things that we believe. So how do we respond to today's cult cultural climate? We call this epistemology or the area of knowledge. 
this is the difference between objective truth and subjective opinion, which my team had a hard time deciphering at, some, at times. Anyway, um, but we live in a postmodern, post-truth age. It's, we are being taught, you, don't, you may not know it, but you need to interpret life through personal experiences, through self-interest, through emotions, through cultural prejudices. You need to understand there's language limitations. So we are being taught these things. And to claim anything otherwise is arrogant. It will lead to conflicts between communities. And so these are the things that we are being taught. And yet, um, it's dangerous in one way. It's dangerous in saying that your way to really hold on to something orthodox or what you think it means is dangerous because it goes against our idea or definition of toler tolerance. Um, and so we must have this really subjective view of pluralism. And that means that you can't have shaped truths. You must all kind of go into this mesh. What has happened now is you need to either belong to this mesh fully or you don't belong to us at all. And we're seeing this happen. Um, I think a primary example is through political affiliation. So you need to completely like follow everything that they say, otherwise you're really not a Democrat or you're really not a Republican. You're just a confused person. And that's the kind of cultural climate we have and, this is, and they do this in the idea of tolerance. How do we respond to that? Well, we respond to it this way. We say that truth always corresponds to reality. The reason why it's called truth is because it is reality. We believe that the Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets and the apostles to write the Bible also inspires us to understand the Bible. And so this is why when the Bible says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, and they're higher, right? And then this is why in Hebrews chapter 2, we respond, uh, it, the response now is through the Son, he has spoken to us. Through Jesus Christ, he has spoken to us. And that's how we can understand a lot of the things that are in Scripture. Uh, number two is we must affirm that truth is conveyed by Scripture. We believe that Scripture it has a lot of instructions. It is pervasively propositional. It has a lot of instructions. But all the statements we believe are completely true and authoritative. And so we can't, you know exhaustively go through everything. We can't write it down in some list. That's what we just hold on to the Bible. And number three is we affirm that the truth is corresponding, corresponds to life with God. It's not, it's not just, so the Bible isn't just theoretical. It's practical. That means there are, there are there's theology, there's things that you learn, but the reason why you get, you're given these things is because we're to live it. The purpose of the Bible is to produce in us a godly heart, a godly person. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Uh, this is why we say in the Reformation there is a, a stanza that we go by. It's called sola scriptura. It means by scripture alone. That means we hold to the truth of Scripture, that it is inerrant and infallible. It means this, 
The writings of scripture are true and trustworthy. They are not false. They are not deceptive. They are not fraudulent in anything that they communicate. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul would write this. Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so that's why we hold true to the Bible. I know this is long. Thank you so much for staying with me. This actually, I have like um, much more. But anyway, um, I'm going to go to the last part. You guys are great. Uh, how do we, the final part is how do we read the Bible, which is what we call hermeneutics or interpretation. So there are two ways. I'll end it with this. We read along the Bible, and then we read across the Bible. We read along the Bible, and we read across the Bible. Along the Bible is to discern that there is a single plot line in God's story of redemption, and there's themes, but in this perspective, we see that God has a purpose of salvation, and it climaxes in Jesus Christ. So this is also in our confessional statement. It says, God providentially brings out his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. That's reading um, <clears throat> along the whole Bible. We see that in every stage in history, every single part of the Bible is pointing to Jesus Christ and the redemptive story that the Bible is showing us, that God is showing us through the Bible. And then we read across the Bible. To read across the Bible is to look at its declarations, its summons, its promises, its truths, and see that there is a substitutionary work of Jesus Christ that we need to embrace, okay? There's God, and then there's sin, and then there's Jesus' work, and then our response to it. That's the gospel message. So whether you read along or across, the gospel message is there. And this is why it shapes us the two ways. Many will only read one way. There's one single narrative or one single narrative this way, but it's along and across. So if you read only along, what happens is we don't really focus on the sacrificial service that Jesus did and we believe that this life now is about social work or changing the economy or, um, you know, make sure we need to liberate the world. And this kind of only single reading can lead to a very huge imbalance in your life. And there's no focus on evangelism, no focus on apologetics, no exposition and preaching, and there's no emphasis on you need to be born again. On the other hand, if you only read across, then the, the danger is that you only focus on this and there is no justice. There is no mercy work for the poor and oppressed and you only focus on yourself. As long as I'm saved, I get safe passage to heaven, so forget about everyone else. These are both extremes that are wrong. You need both. You need along and across. And so we do not believe that the best way to practice is only one way. And we don't believe that they're contradictory. In fact, people may pit them to, against each other, but that's not true. You are supposed to do it together because the gospel is the declaration that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has come to reconcile individuals by his grace and renew the whole world by and for his glory. 
So the gospel is the declaration that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has come to reconcile individuals by his grace and renew the whole world by and for his glory. I do have more for you, but I will save that for the Q&A if you do want to stay behind. Um, I just want to continue to let you know, again, this is not exhaustive. There are so many more reasons why the Bible is beautiful, why we follow it. And I hope that you can listen to this talk, I hope, again and again when it's recorded. But I hope that you see what we follow isn't just myth. It's not just, I'm just going to take this because, you know, that's what we are. But this is real truth. This is objective truth and reality that's being portrayed in the Bible. So when we follow it, it's actually good. It's beautiful. It leads to our flourishing. And guess what? God created us to flourish. So he is glorified and he's happy. That's why we follow the Bible the way we follow it. Let's pray.